0: Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today.
1: The, the main approach of the Good Life Movement is that we are doing uh, political awareness and organizing for mental health. And so what that means is you know we're trying to get the people more involved in the politics of mental health specifically and the way we're doing that is we're coming out with um like a bigger vision of how we can solve the problems and a clear plan on how we can fix the crisis uh the the care crisis the hq of our team is going to create scorecards and hold every single politician accountable and say hey like here's the plan we have like five to ten percent of the people in your district now we've created a strong mental health voting block we've rallied the people Like, here's a voting card. Here are the policies that me and the rest of the gang of the mental health field have put together. Like, where do you stand on it? Love 92% of Democrats, 92% of independents, and 94% of Republicans all say, we need to be doing more on mental health. We have the voters, they're gonna hold you accountable. What's the plan? Are you voting yes or no on this bill?
2: It is my pleasure to welcome to forward the originator of the math hat, the number two employee in Yang 2020, and now the founder and head of the Good Life Movement, brand new, Andrew Frawley. Welcome, Andrew.
1: Yes. Thank you. Very happy to be here.
2: Andrew, you and I have known each other for years, ever since you did join our janky little campaign as the second employee. What made you join a campaign that barely existed for president of a guy that no one had heard of?
1: Yeah it was definitely a leap of faith um when we first met i was living in san francisco and i was very passionate about mental health and automation i thought um you know automation was going to change our society and economy and that was going to have very negative effects on mental health and super randomly i was visiting new york city and met you and you were talking about mental health and automation and i was like oh my gosh like what a what a what a match made in heaven and i thought universal basic income was a super powerful idea for building the security of the people. And obviously, that that has a huge impact on the mind. So, you know, I was 23, I didn't really have many other options in my career. (laughs) You don't have to say that. (laughs) I was, you know, I was looking around and I said, well, you know, this is a big idea, a smart guy. Um, You know, it's a moonshot, but let's go for it.
2: Well, you were integral... Early on, I remember you and I were scrapping and hustling, driving around some rental car. Uh, I remember you being one of my early hype men or hype people where you introduced me at a, working, That's right. a co-working space in San Francisco. Uh, I, I went all in. Yes, and then we were on a tour together. And I remember showing up to that venue and there were these math signs that you had originated. You, you were the first merchandise head. Of Yang 2020. I didn't think anything of it, honestly. I was like, oh, math, that's cool. And then people started picking them up and waving them and it became this massive thing. What inspired you to try and even invest, frankly, like, you know, hard earned campaign money in a math sign? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I mean, I guess the idea around math really is that it was a symbol of thinking for the campaign. Like it was a huge focus on you know, the numbers and really improving lives and not really uh, getting caught up in what so often feels like a circus in politics. It was an absolute focus, razor focus on, you know, the mechanisms that are going to improve the lives of people. And people, people, people agreed with that, they kind of seemed to resonate.
2: Yeah, well, it certainly took off, man. I think we, we sold several million dollars worth of math hats alone, uh, sure much did. less overall merch. So thank and you. H- hundreds yeah,
1: yeah. of 1000s of them it was uh, quite the treat.
2: No, and, and thank you to everyone who contributed to the campaign, uh, raised tens of millions and went on to compete on seven debate stages, thanks to folks around the country. Uh, but really, thanks to folks like you who bought in early and formed the core of our little team that grew. Um, what, a, what a journey we had, my friend. Uh, what was your craziest memory from the trail, aside from any of the stuff I just said, since none of that stuff's that crazy? <laughs> <laughs>
1: I mean, without a doubt, it was, you know, I forget what they, they changed the name of it, but I think it was the Johnson Johnson dinner in Iowa, which is when um, all of the candidates came together for this sort of final Super Bowl moment in Iowa. And you had, you know, I was with you backstage and I was doing photography at the time. And, you know, we came across, cross paths with like you know, Kamala Harris and Joe Biden and Michael Bennett. And, you know, it's one of those moments where you're sort of looking around and you're like, how am I here? Like, how did we get here? Um, especially given the humble beginnings, like we had started an apartment with this pipe dream of like basically free money to the people, and yet here we were, you know, with a good message that threaded the needle perfectly, and we were, you know, hanging out with you know, now the president I of the United States. I think it was called
2: the Liberty and Justice Dinner. Yeah, they changed the name, and they, so yeah, the Liberty I and Justice Dinner in uh, Des Moines, Iowa. Uh, I remember that night well. Um, my wife Evelyn was there, so that was glorious fun. And that was relatively late in the campaign. That was, wow, maybe January because Iowa voted in February. Uh, and then after the campaign ended, you went to work on the Bloomberg campaign briefly. But simultaneously, you were already originating what now has become the Good life movement.
1: Yeah, I mean, I um you know, the good life movement is something that has basically been percolating in my mind since 2016, like when I was working with, you know, thinking about your campaign, I was already thinking about the systems of how do we improve mental health. But the journey goes back all the way to my childhood where I grew up in Northern Virginia, um, which, uh, you know, is a sort of wholesome American suburb, I guess. And my family is sort of a product of the American dream a bit, like my father's a blue collar, uh, high school educated painter who Spent years painting walls until he could, you know, work his way up and buy ownership into a small business. You know, my mother was a stay-at-home mom, PTA, you know, things like that. Um, and our life was like this sort of like commercial uh, sales pitch for like the suburbs. Like we were this family of four, modest suburbs, diverse public schools, like Chili's on Friday in a movie. But the reality is that like this like. Facade of the dreamy suburbs is so often uh, just that—it's a facade, and under it is so frequently these uh, aching souls. And I've sort of come to see that as a like feature and not a bug of like the American system that seems to just so much profit off of our uh, anxiety. You know, my teens—I had a—you uh, know, my my mental health began to deteriorate very early on. I couldn't keep up with the like meritocracy of the educational system. And then I was diagnosed with ADHD and sort of stigmatized for that and began to crumble a bit. Um, And then unfortunately my parents divorced and that just sent me into a total spiral. I spent, you know, roughly five or six years basically clinically depressed in my mother's basement, angry, playing World of Warcraft for 60 hours a week, uh, making memes and like stabbing, you know, spider crickets that would jump around the basement. Um, and worst of all, I developed an eating disorder. Uh, I weighed 300 pounds at the age of 14 and developed a form of uh, OCD called trichotillomania, where you basically just like rip out your hair. And so I was this image of like what today is so commonly the like struggling young men. Um, like I literally had bald spots in my hair and I weighed 300 pounds. I had two friends. I wanted to vomit when I would go into the lunchroom. Um, and I rebounded a bit, but very unfortunately, I began to medicate in new ways and got caught up in the uh, drug and opiate crisis. And like my friends and I, we would raid, um, my parents don't even know any of this, but um, you know, we would raid medicine cabinets at house parties and make bowls of mystery drugs and just take handfuls basically. And unfortunately, some of my friends continued on that path. Some of them ended up on fentanyl, um, and some of them passed away. And, you know, I still to this day am traumatized by that. And, um, you know, the, the, the very sad part about all of that is you, know, you tell yourself you're, um, you know, just doing it for the fun and the high at the time. But the reality is sometimes you are, it's not that you want to die, but you're willing to die just to like feel something. And this is unfortunately so common in the country. Um, yeah. Like the, Seemingly happy suburban home that crumbles is like fundamentally American at this point, and uh, that's it's it's just the heart of so much of the crisis and what we're doing, and it's that is what sort of set me on this quest for the Good Life Movement. Is I didn't even realize it for 15 years. I've been trying to basically understand how how are we so rich in a country uh, that seemingly has it all so figured out, and yet our people are so sick that. Like this is what's happening.
2: Yeah, I, I love the idea behind the good life movement because when I was running for president, I would say to people all the time, we have record high GDP and at the time stock market prices. What else are at record highs? Anxiety, depression, uh overdoses, suicides, pretty much every sign of people suffering is also skyrocketing. And by the way, this is pre-COVID. Now COVID has been this. Uh, factor that has reduced life expectancy both directly and indirectly. Uh, I said to you before we sat down for the interview, it's like, hey, are we all losing our minds because that's the way a lot of people certainly feel. Uh, and you were inspired to, to say, look, there should be a political movement around mental health and of course there 100% should be.
1: Yeah the the, the radical thing about mental health right now is that it's the cause that pretty much everyone is for. And so, just to paint a little bit of the picture of the the crisis and the, and the lifestyle and stuff is like, some people are still unsure if we even have a crisis, and the numbers are no,
2: because I mean <laughs> everyone knows we're I, freaking
1: miserable. We have one in five Americans this year will have um, a mental illness. Less than half half of them will get treatment. You know, suicides um, are up twenty five percent in the last twenty years, while they're going down in other countries um, among youth. You know, it's eighty four percent depression is up a thousand percent in the last 50 years. And then the thing that nobody's talking about with the crisis is so much of the root of it, right? You know, I have my anecdotes in it, but it's, it sort of bears out in the numbers, which is, you know, when you look at it, you have social media is running around completely unregulated. You have, you know, wealth inequality and all of this, Um, you know, you have climate change. Our political system is also like, so, you know, broken and fragmented that it's like, Eroding the base of like hope and optimism in the country, and this is all while like our lifestyles are falling apart, like our communities, our homes. You know, forty percent of Americans say they're lonely. Forty-nine percent of Americans have less than three friends. Sixty-seven percent of Americans say their job they're not engaged at their work in work. Twenty-two percent say their job's completely meaningless. And what blows people's mind is ninety percent of Americans still uh, commute. And so people's day to day is like they sit in traffic, they go they go to a job, they look at a screen, they come home, look at a smaller screen, or
2: if not a screen, maybe they're they're there uh, in a food service job or a security job or something yeah. where you know you necessarily have to commute. Yeah, the, the uh, I've called it the immiseration uh, of the country, where just people are miserable. Yeah, and our, our system is stretching us out in different ways. The the simplest way to think of it is look. Let's say we had relatively stagnant incomes for a generation or so, 20 years. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then the cost of healthcare went up, the cost of education went up, the cost of housing went up. And so even from those things alone, people would be pretty sad because you'd be like, hey, I've been running in place and my kids are going to be worse off. Mm -hmm. One of the stats that I, I found very compelling is that if you're... A non-college-educated American, the odds of you getting married are now less than fifty percent. Mm-hmm. It's like forty-six percent. And uh, as, as someone, and I'm, I'm married and have two kids. Uh, you're single, as far as I know. Um, but I'm going to suggest that a society where people don't regard marriage as something that's going to happen to them, yeah, <laughs> is is probably not heading in a positive direction.
1: No, it's not great.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, you know, there are people who have alternative. Uh, arrangements and the rest of it, and like you know, I'm very open-minded, but but big picture, like you know, people giving up on starting families with a committed partner, in that in that sense, and I again, I know there are people that are committed without being married, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But that there, there are all of these very disastrous trends and numbers, and uh, I've been uh, another huge number that is driving me to distraction nowadays, which is what the good life movement is trying to address, is that 70, 80% of us can be for something and nothing happens. Like the relationship between public approval or public sentiment and policy is at this point next to non-existent.
1: It really is. Let's change it, man, how are we gonna change it? (laughs) Well, I mean, as far as you know, solving the electoral system—that's you know, seem, that's my job. seemingly up to up to the forward party. <laughs> yeah. but once you do that, we'll we'll solve all the, the mental health problems.
2: This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know. What they're doing, you don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S vpn.com yang. Go to expressvpn.com yang to learn more.
1: So this was like one of the things that I thought about with the Good Life Movement is, you know, I was looking around. I was like, so we have this big crisis. Now COVID has hit. We're talking about a lot. Like, why are we not actually making progress on mental health? Like, why is this not like a main topic in politics? Why does it not have this equal presence? There should
2: be a giant freaking interest group movement behind it, where if you're a legislator and you're for mental health, then you win. And if you're not on board with various common sense measures, then you lose.
1: Yeah. I mean, that is basically what we are coming out for. So Uh, The the main approach of the Good Life Movement is that we are doing uh, political awareness and organizing for mental health. And so what that means is, you know, we're trying to get the people more involved in the politics of mental health specifically. We have this big movement, like I said, um, lots of energy, but it hasn't translated into like the action and accountability to our politicians. And the way we're doing that is we're coming out with um, like a bigger vision of how we can solve the problems. And a clear plan on how we can fix the crisis uh the the care crisis the hope is that we can rally the people um build a big movement and then funnel that very intentionally into uh like smart you know advocacy given how the system is actually structured now which has an outsized emphasis on the primaries funnel that very specifically into you know calls letters you know office visits demonstrations with the goal of getting those politicians just to be held accountable uh for their votes. Uh, for their funding, you know how they approach mental health and so you know our the HQ of our team is going to create scorecards and hold every single politician accountable and wow. say hey like here's the plan we have like five to ten percent of the people in your district now we've created the strong mental health voting block we've rallied the people. Like, here's a voting card. Here are the policies that me and the rest of the gang of the mental health field have put together. Like, where do you stand on it? Love it. 92% of Democrats, 92% of Independents, and 94% of Republicans all say we need to be doing more on mental health. We have the voters. They're going to hold you accountable. What's the plan? Are you voting yes or no on this bill? So that is ultimately what we're trying to do. Love it. And, uh, yeah, rallying the people. Um, <laughs>
2: yeah, you want us to transition from uh, GNP, Gross National Product, to... Gross National being. yes, GNW, which would be an incredible step up, and it would also highlight how poorly we're doing. Where now we are thirtieth in the world in life expectancy, public education, clean air, and clean water—things that you know would probably lead you to be less unhappy. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. going to suggest. So uh, let's posit that we have this new benchmark, and it shows how miserable we are. What are the evidence based measures that actually would make us happier and healthier? Like if, if you were running in, let's say a, a Democratic primary, or Republican primary, like what are we trying to get them on board with?
1: So obviously, the big picture, like you said, is like, we want to get them on board with um, the main, one of the big ideas of our organization, which is uh, gross domestic well being Because like you said, so much of the problem is that we chase money. We have this false belief that money is a good enough proxy to the good life. Yeah, it's messed up. it bears out in the facts and the numbers that's just like not the case. Money does have an impact on happiness, but the numbers have shown that every dollar you have has a lesser impact on your happiness.
2: Wait, so just to to put a, a number on that, the studies I've seen showed that your happiness goes up significantly as you make more money up to approximately $75,000 and this data is a couple of years old so you could probably inflate that cuz you know <laughs> the current thing so let's call it 80 $80,000 and then the dollars after that don't tend to affect your well-being as much is yes, that what you mean
1: that is exactly it so every dollar you have after a threshold um, has a lesser impact on your happiness and true, it's... man someone gives me
2: a dollar <laughs> right now i'm like Fuck you. I don't well, care. Well, they've actually found it's,
1: it <laughs> it's even logarithmic. So the amount of joy that you gain, let's say going from forty to eighty thousand dollars in income, to get the same units of joy you now need to make one sixty and then three twenty. So it starts to become much harder to get the joy and happiness that you need. And like you said, there is an inflection point and it's between seventy five and hundred five thousand dollars somewhere in there. And so, you know, the, the the big idea is that we just need to recognize that, like as a society that You know, chasing GDP into no man's land is like so much a part of the sickness. We need to make this transition. There's a uh, professor that said something just unbelievably powerful to me. He said one of the major problems with how we talk about uh, the mental health crisis and just like the sickness in general is that we are individualizing societal problems. Because so much of it goes to this, like, the incentive structures. And so many people, they say, like, hey, we need to fix lifestyles. We need to improve the social determinants. We need to, you know, do these things because that's how we solve mental health. But it's like, hey, how are we going to do that? Like, until you fix the incentives and get all society to smoothly roll towards, like, the actual goal. Or at least agree on a goal, fucking baseline. That's yeah, it's thing. like until you actually, like, set your clear goal, every yeah. single, po- just a just a park your fist fighting with, like, you know, city council and legislators because it's, like, it's it's not entirely lined up. And if you actually create a clear measure, then there's like uh, much more effective ways on how you can quantify what's actually gonna bring us well-being. So you would ask this question, like what are the things? It
2: sounds like giving everyone money would help <laughs> yeah, well, if they make <laughs> less well, than Well, for many people,
1: especially because the median income, right, still rests in the thirty thousands. Yeah. So that's like one of the big things about like gross domestic well-being is it's like it bakes in and accounts for the fact that money does have an impact. On our well-being and happiness. We don't need to demonize it, but we also need to recognize there's more than that. And a good uh, well-being measure accounts for that. And um, what's incredible is the field has found um, about 10 variables that contribute to our well-being, and that can be baked into the measure. Do you have those 10? I, I have them memorized. You won't believe so how. So much
2: fun. Everyone listen <laughs> up. You won't believe. These are the 10 things that determine our <laughs> societal well-being.
1: Lay them on us. Now, okay, I'll, I'll lay them out, but there's different measures and you can sort of structure it how you want. But number one is vitality, which is like a subjective sense of vitality. I think the definitions are important with these. Uh, One is uh, environmental mastery, a sense of uh, being able to control your environment, Um, positive relationships, um, a sense of self-acceptance, a sense of mastery in your work, in your craft, in your trade, Um, a sense of autonomy, which is basically like freedom. And I always love that one because it's like, you know, we got one right, like America, we nailed the freedom bucket. And then a growth mindset, your perspective on the world, uh, engagement in your day-to-day work, so being absorbed um, in just like your life, and then purpose, and then transcendence, which is basically like spirituality and faith and a sense of awe and flow. And the key about these is that they're, they're, they're very subjective and relative to the person, which I think is super, super powerful. Rather than going around and, and looking at like material world outcomes and saying like, we want people in houses, we want people fed and things like that. So,
2: so you're saying that gross national well-being would be determined by
1: surveys
2: where we measured these ten self-reported qualities?
1: It very well could be. you know I mean, there, there there's a lot of ways that you can structure it. Yes, um and like for us, the thing is what we're really advocating for is just moving away from this obsession with uh, like a disproven, idea that money and GDP are the way, yeah, and transition we, to this agreed. new idea. And we can still figure out the details of what yeah. we want. There's many metrics. I mean, I could sit here and list off like 10 different yeah, because ways there, there, to structure because the there are measure. some
2: international standards around uh, happiness. Some of it is self-reported. They almost always use a survey. But then they can take some other empirical data, mm-hmm. like suicide. <laughs> I mean, it's yeah. like yeah, That's that's flaring up, then you know there, there are problems. Um, life expectancy... Uh, anxiety and depression rates of use of prescription meds. Since, uh, in my opinion, we're very much over-medicated in this country. You know why? Because someone figured out they could make money. I mean, if, if it was the reverse, then all of a sudden you'd see a yeah. lot, of, like a very, very different.
1: I mean, it it really does go back to the incentives, um, and what you know, like you said, like there, there's many ways you can structure it. And what I like about it is that you can make it malleable to the community because so many of these well-being measures. They are like effectively self-reported like how do you find mastery and purpose and meaning? And so it can be relative to each you know uh, you know local constituencies um, values and expression like what well-being looks like in Texas is going to be a little different than California. And if you set that as the goal, you know how you get to purpose or meaning and you know bring that out in your communities is going to be different depending on the communities. So it's as far as the specific ideas, you know, you can run calculations, but it's going to be a little different for each community. But the obvious things, right? It's where you'll have green space, walkable cities. Like you'll probably see more remote work, paid family leave. Um, you know, investments into keeping families together, subsidizing you know family therapy. The, the thing about this idea is unpacking a little bit of the background of it is that gross domestic well being being um, is produced by a currently thriving field of economists. Like this isn't just some like radical nothing yeah, better. Yeah, people have been working on it. I, I mean, mean their a,
2: countries have adopted.
1: Yeah, it's like the it. United Kingdom has gross domestic well-being. It was introduced by conservative prime minister, David Cameron. And then when they actually instituted it, when they were like working the numbers and trying to figure out how to make it go up, they created this revolutionary program uh, to cr- increase access to a super uh, effective form of therapy. For $1,000 a patient, um, they had 51% rates of full recovery from depression, across wow. the UK. And this wasn't like a micro study. They serviced like 10% of the population in the UK. <laughs> wow. I mean, it was like a huge sample. Uh, I, size.
2: I've got a feeling that 10% or more of the US could benefit from <laughs> some therapy personally. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. That's helixsleep.com slash yang. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. So you just rattled off a whole set of things that it sounds like would help make us happier and healthier, and all of those make sense. I'll say that for me, some of the things that, that come to mind, well, for myself, if I'm feeling down, one of the things I try and do is exercise, um, ideally outdoors, because that's a double whammy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and studies have shown, because I'm into data, uh, studies have shown that exposure to nature is actually uplifting and good for your mental health and exercise is good for your mental health. Yeah. So guess what, exercising outdoors <laughs> is, uh, is probably good for your mental health. Instead of people paying to join a gym, it's like we should either make, you know, we should be paying you to go to the gym. <laughs> <laughs> or, or certainly for me, one one of the things you, you mentioned, I'm really passionate about is trying to find healthy outlets for men in particular young men who are lost. And if you leave yeah. young men to their own devices, they can go down some very, very negative, very distra- roads, or destructive, self destructive, or uh, externally destructive. Uh, and one of the things that I've found to be very, very good for getting out certain impulses or aggression is martial arts training, uh, particularly jujitsu, uh, but any martial arts training, uh, it gives you a sense of camaraderie and fellowship and the rest of it. And so I was talking about having like essentially like a national, uh, (laughs) MMA freaking program. And, and, and and in my mind's eye too, this is how crazy I got in my mind's eye was that you'd have champions of every town and County and weight class and state. And then you'd have people competing and then there'd be like this sort of national, dragnet of badassery but i dare say this would be about a thousand times more healthy than whatever the fuck is going on now <laughs> so, so so this this is one of my my oh, dreams. Gosh. did i talk that much about that particular dream no i did not but uh but was it a dream yes it was so like what what are the things that you because i know you've dug very deep into the the research like what are the things that would actually make people happier and healthier
1: just as an aside i, I do jujitsu and i highly endorse it it's very cathartic and all of those things <laughs> it's a great community i mean one of the things that they've definitely found in the science is like well, you can actually you, you can uh find happiness in like any type of lifestyle like vitality is literally defined as like a subjective sense tom Insel, the former director of the national institute of mental health he says in his book that Mental health outcomes are determined 10 to 15% by health care. The rest of it is our lifestyles. And so, so much of our approach has to be this whole person thinking, like you said, like it literally includes like our diet and our meaning and our community and our social life and family and transportation and housing and all these things. And again, which is why we're sort of for uh, gross domestic well-being is because if you fight each of those battles individually until the incentives are not aligned, you're just like fist fighting into no man's land. Um, as far as the specifics, so the the highest correlate uh, to like depression and often, unfortunately, suicide is a lack of meaning, and the numbers have shown that the greatest driver of meaning is just a sense of belonging. So the number one thing, you know, that we could probably do is find ways to increase meaning and in community. The
2: the search for meaning is the big one, and the simplest way to substitute something in for meaning is community, in my mind, because then you can be working alongside other people and accomplish something that you're excited about and proud of.
1: I will share one of the things that we are working on um, is putting out what is what we're basically going to call as like a cultural vision, which is so much of what we're discussing, right, are things the government can't really be involved in, nor should it be, like creating meaning in people's lives. It's kind of a strange role for the government. But we have to acknowledge that this is like the root of the, the sickness and the problem is it's our lifestyles. And so we're looking to basically create a massive working group that includes both you know, researchers and all sorts of random people who know the answers to things, but also the people and create this sort of like um, open working group on like, hey, what is the cultural vision here? Where it's like, we can set a clear intent. Because again, if you have like the tip of the spear is the gross domestic well-being, which is like, this is what the government can do. But it, that is what is super powerful is if your government just actually comes out and says, hey... Like our own well-being is like the point. The increase, it, it, it's our priority. The fact that we have to like fight for that is strange. But then from there is the trickle down where people say, "Oh wow, like now is the time." Here's the like now is the the people's century or whatever. And what like what is the cultural vision that we want? And so and we're working on putting that together because so much of it, like you said, it's it's these communities and tribes and clubs and things like that. And it's like, how do we do that? I like I like it's 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 complex. But so much value is gained in, like, having a clear goal and a clear place to go. So, you know, for the people who are interested in, like, assembling the cultural vision, (laughs) like, come by, you know, goodlifemovement.org.
2: So what are the solutions that the research indicates would actually help us, help our well-being?
1: So... When it comes to the care system, there are probably, like, uh, I mean, there, there's so much that we can do, but the three main buckets are uh, the 988 number, but not just the number, but building out the entire care system. You mean like
2: a 911 for
1: mental health? Yes. So it just recently transitioned two months ago. We uh, had only basically the 911 number. Now we have a 988 number for uh, mental health crises, uh, substance use even. And so that is basically just a number right now. And... The effective solution is building out a care continuum, and the, the, the best part about this is if we build out How the continuum- How many communities have
2: a 988 number now?
1: Technically, everyone, but but there, there's regional call centers all around the country, and if one region doesn't have the capacity, it just gets wired to another state. But again, the, the, the 988 number right now is uh, primarily uh, peer specialists with some training. Um, But that's all it really is. Your optimal solution is that you actually build out, carry on uh, like mobile crisis teams where you have like a psychiatric nurse, peer specialist and um, clinical social worker. And those are obviously fantastic models where right now, if someone is in crisis and the person on the number can't help them solve it, um, rather than calling the police who has no training in it and nowhere to take them, they call a 988 number you know, the 24-7 mobile van shows up and they help talk them down. The, the social worker speaking with the family. It's a much better picture. It also obviously saves money. They've rolled this out in Maricopa County, Arizona, um, and they've been able to shift 37 police officers off of mental health duty onto like solving crimes while also saving hospitals $37 million. And if someone is in a, a terrible crisis um, and the mobile crisis team can't solve it, we need to build out uh, what are called like behavioral health Urgent care clinics, so it's very similar to like what we have in New York City, City MD, where something urgently comes up, there's no wait. You can go and get access, and we don't really have these in the mental health care system much at all. They do exist, but it's it's very spotty. We have one of the leading models are called CCBHCs, which doesn't you know that's a whole jargon, but the point is we have about 400 of them, um, which is very limiting, and those are tremendous centers that have integrated, coordinated care where, you know, you have psychologists and therapists and, uh, you know, uh, all the medications for substance use overdose. And so if someone goes in there, there's someone who can talk them down, who can give medicine. There's even sometimes physicians who can have a medical overhead approach. And that is like the vision for the care system overall, rather than like stumbling through this care system. people. This is something people don't realize is that mental health care treatments are actually super, super effective. Part of the problem right now is that they're not delivered in the way that they should be delivered. 85% of psychiatric uh, drugs are prescribed by people without psychiatric uh, backgrounds. And that's not a knock on like the primary care physicians and nurses doing that. The problem is that people don't have access to the actual... S- Psychiatrists and physicians, and so they have to get care where they can. But good care is very intentionally timed. You're focusing on like this drug, this timing. Then you bring in this type of talk therapy with this type of therapist. You have the overhead of the physician. Like that is the vision of like what care can be. And so we need to build out not just the care continuum, but then you know have that sort of like integration that comes with that. the The second thing, uh, big solution, is obviously taking on the insurance companies. To increase uh, access and reduce costs, just the, the cold truth is that many mental uh, insurance companies are just like blatantly discriminating against mental health. So they, if if you're a psychiatrist or a therapist or whatever, they reimburse you at much lower rates. And so basically, these people can't run their business if they take your insurance, like they literally can't, you know, pay their staff. What ends up happening is that they only take out of pocket, um, out of pocket patients, which consolidates them into basically like affluent neighborhoods. And so you have these radical disparities in uh, access where it's right now, 55% of the counties in the United States don't have a single mental health, uh, psychiatrist, psychologist, or social worker. 73% of counties don't have a child psychiatrist at all. I mean, at all. I mean, we, where we have this youth crisis I mean, the numbers are so bad that, uh, an 18 year old can get a gun faster than they can get an appointment with a psychiatrist. And so, so much of that problem is again, the disparities in, um, Like insurance. And the thing is, this is super illegal. In 2008, Patrick Kennedy, I swear that family has been like on the mental health game. Patrick Kennedy passes uh, this legislation among other legislators in DC that made it completely illegal. uh, And insurance companies must cover mental health equally to physical health. And yet, they're just like not listening. They just don't really follow the law. And so I actually um, have connected with a top official here in New York State, who is working on holding Medicaid uh, insurance companies accountable for uh, basically like stealing money from people who are trying to make claims for their mental health care. And in the last few years, just New York State alone, just Medicaid, he found them stealing over two hundred thirty billion million, and they're using that money to buy the votes to prevent the accountability to hold them uh, accountable. So, I mean, it's, you, you it's, it's, it's just ridiculous. You can easily see insurance
2: companies denying these claims because they fall into <laughs> something of the gray area where it's like, yeah. you know, in their minds. I mean, what you're saying is, look, mental health is health, and I think everyone can agree with that.
1: Yeah. Mental health is definitely health. And so, you know, we basically just need to enforce the laws that we have and we can solve that problem. And then the third thing that we really need to focus on is just obviously our youth. Uh, You know, youth outcomes, as mentioned, are tremendously uh, bad coming through COVID. 44% of our youth uh, feel a persistent feeling of hopelessness and sadness. You know, uh, suicide rates are up 84% in the last 10 years with an outsized emphasis on uh, young black men uh, LGBTQ and trans, I mean, they've three x the rates of uh, attempted suicides. You know, Latino girls
2: had a surge in particular that I found out about. I was like that—that's terrible. Um, there are also really strikingly bad statistics for boys in general.
1: Yes, I mean, it's again like this very much is the everyone cause. I mean, when you look at the numbers, it's sometimes a little different in like what exactly, like what's what's the exact poison but everyone is struggling. And we have the answers to a care system. Um, You know, with youth, it's like there's so many obvious solutions. One of the major things that the whole mental health field is supporting is just teaching life skills in school. Yeah. One of the most invigorating things is that the mental health field has like many of the answers. And when I first began this journey into this organization, before I even committed to it, I, I spent months and months determining if we actually had the answers, and we totally have it, between the 988 number, building out the care system, taking on the insurance companies to reduce costs, increase access, and then uh, securing our youth and improving our school system and 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 strengthening the family system with a larger cultural vision, right, with the gross domestic well-being and this trickle down of the incentives. Like, this is actually how we can begin to shift the direction of the crisis into actually moving us not just out of crisis, but towards, like, a more abundant like flourishing society and it's like not something that'll obviously happen overnight um it's not a panacea but this is um like this is all attainable. it's like not far out i mean this is a bipartisan cause that everyone loves that people are ready to go to war for it don't you mean
2: tripartisan <laughs> 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 Yeah, yeah. it's interesting when you say it's like, hey, you want to be pro mental health. The first thing someone might think is, okay, we need to invest in psychologists, psychiatrists, beds, yeah, uh, therapeutic en- environments. Um, but you're thinking much bigger than that.
1: Yeah. Well, it's, again, it's like when I thought I was going to be the outlier, um, but I have spent, for context, I soft launched this organization roughly six or seven months ago, and I took. I had written a white paper, and I took the message around the mental health field to like shop around the ideas. Um, and I was met with like resounding excitement, not just in the idea of creating a clear organization for the people to rally together and fight for mental health, but actually in this broader vision. The ex-director of the National Institute of Mental Health of twelve years wrote a book where he basically says, like, to really we solve the a problem, we need us. to think like whole person population health. I mean, I recently spoke with the CEO of the American Psychological Association, Dr. Arthur Evans, and he said, the number one thing or or contribution that your organization could make to this field is bring this bigger vision to the people of population health. Because so much of how we're solving the problems right now is that we're focusing on on like the care system, it's like trying to solve a, a whole crisis by only building hospitals.
2: Well, if you make the point of the economy, our well-being, then everything ends up being an investment if it improves your yeah. well-being. And right now, we've seen as a cost <laughs> that it's a yeah then it ends up reversing things. I think about the Good Life Movement as the March for Our Lives of mental health. Is that a, a fair uh, comparison? It, it is
1: fairly accurate. Um, I, I don't know the details of what they do. It is fairly accurate. We're going to do much more education around the topic. Um, like I said, we have to bring this message of a larger approach. And it
2: affects everyone um, from uh, from people in rural communities who are struggling. When I was in Iowa, they were talking about farmer suicide, shooting up uh, to people who are struggling with uh, belonging in uh, you know, like any community, really. Yes. Um. For for any reason. Um, so I love the universality of it. Uh, I hope it does become a thriving political movement that ends up pushing us in the right direction. I would love for a forward party to be supportive and part of it. You know what? I'm actually going to make this commitment right here. We're going to put pressure on the Democrats and Republicans by saying the forward party is with the good life movement. So now you've got one of three. And then the other two now will have to be like, oh, snap. Like if we want to get the 92% of the, the voters out there who want this, like we have to get on board too.
1: It, it would be, uh, tremendous. Uh, it, it really is the everyone cause. Um, I mean, it, it, affects, uh, everyone in different ways. Um, but, uh, like you said, from farmers to veterans, to, uh, m- mothers, to uh, immigrants, youth. to trans youth, to LGBTQ, to, you know, yeah, around, among military it, like,
2: veterans, fo- uh, people coming out of foster care. Like, uh, you, you see among certain groups, the adverse, outcomes are are much they're shockingly prevalent yeah it's something that makes you super sad
1: i mean something i wanted. i want to unpack a little bit of the background of our mental health care system because i think um this will rightly piss off a lot of people and get them pretty it's probably money involved pretty pretty ready to fight so i mean obviously mental health has always been sort of just like discriminated against since like the beginning of time um i mean until even in the early 1900s 33 states sterilization was legal for people with just dis, uh, mental disabilities and mental health issues which is like heinous in the early 1900s every, everyone with serious mental illness was mostly being basically just like warehoused in asylums like that it's wasn't like, the uh,
2: original the cookers nest type stuff
1: yeah well, that wasn't the original vision of those uh state hospitals but that is like what they became because the political will wasn't there it really began the 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 story begins in the 1950s and 1960s, JFK was looking at that system and he was like, this is like shitty and we need to change it. And the original shift was to move to community mental health centers, which are like sort of wholesome idea of like 16 beds, two to one staff to patient ratio, where you can incorporate this like community lifestyle improvement. There's a huge focus on routines. Mom, mom and dad can come by and hang out. And he actually passes this landmark legislation in 1963 that was uh, set to close the asylums and move everyone into and build out this huge network of this like fantastic care system. And he gets assassinated three weeks later. And so you, the movement loses its political head and leadership. What ends up happening is the funding doesn't really uh, continue. And yet the bill was passed. So the asylums are closed and the mental health centers are never built. And, we wow. go, and so we go from 95% or 95% of our public beds are still to this day gone we went from 337 beds uh, per hundred thousand residents to 12 oh. for public beds and if you're wondering like where did those people go it manifested into two of the crises that we talk about most today which is mass incarceration and the homelessness uh, crisis where the numbers are uh people who are homeless or unhoused have uh, 20 to 25% rates of serious mental illness, which is 500% times the rate of the general population. And then in your jail system, the jail system is ridiculous as far as like how it relates to mental health. Similarly, 20 to 25% are the rates, and we have 10 times the amount of people with serious mental illness in our jail system versus our state hospital system. Wow. In 44 states, there's more people um, in the uh, jails than. Um, the state hospital system, and Los Angeles County Jail is our the nation's largest mental health provider, uh-huh. and this is all to the tune of, you know, thirty three thousand dollars per inmate per year, um, per year. and twenty one. This this is the stat that just rocked my world. Twenty one percent of all police time is spent answering calls regarding serious mental illness. Twenty one percent of all time. I mean, that's like billions, maybe tens of billions of dollars. And so, um, if you're wondering, like, why didn't we fix it since then? Jimmy Carter actually tried to solve the problem in the 70s. He makes this big campaign, creates a consortium. In 1980, he actually passes the legislation with Ted Kennedy. Reagan gets elected, and he's like, "No, it's a moral failing. People are weak. Drugs yeah. are bad." Repeals the whole thing, again, cuts off the head of the mental health field, and he literally banishes the mental health in psychological team that was a permanent fixture in carter's white house in the west wing he banishes them and so you you ran for president saying like we need a psychologist in the white house we we actually used to have that we used to have that and then reagan banished them and not only did that you know kill the momentum of the field it actually reinvigorated the stigma and it stalled the field and so we've basically had like no major developments, at least at the federal level, for 40 years. And so we have like 40 years of innovations. We had the answers 40 years ago, and we still haven't even like, you know, been able to implement that. What we had 40 years ago, nonetheless, the innovation in the new ideas sense, And so we have, you know, I feel bad for the people in the mental health field. They've been like fighting like hell, underfunded, undersupported, mm-hmm. with the answers like, hey, please, can we fund this stuff? We know what we need to do. We'll solve the care crisis. And nobody's been listening. But now... Now the Good Life Movement is here to change it.
2: <laughs> no. Uh, the, so I, I dream about a positive, unifying political movement that will result in people's lives being better. And you are building just that, my friend. I'm so proud of you and happy. Uh, I was going to say happy for you. I mean, you have a lot of work ahead, but like happy to, to support you in any way that we can so that you actually get some of these things implemented in real life. Because yeah. even... Having gross national well being, that would be a major step. But if we can start providing the resources uh, and the answers to some of these problems that we can all see getting worse around us, like that, that is truly the way out. If someone wants to help drive the movement and help it succeed, uh, where should they go?
1: Well, they should go to goodlifemovement.org um, and donate $1, because right now, the Entire establishment, the media, celebrities, influencers, advocates, like I've talked to all these people. And they're all looking for the thing that they can bet on to help lead this, the people to beat this crisis, implement these solutions and enhance our lifestyles. And this is the organization. Nobody else is doing this. This is the reason I am building the Good Life Movement is I looked around. In 2021 and i was like why is no one doing this what this is, is the, the super obvious movement that, that we need obvious so if people donate one dollar it's basically an endorsement of the ideas and visions and then you know you know we're, we're small and volunteer driven right now but if we have five or ten thousand just one dollar donors uh through the winter and into the early spring suddenly all of the media and all of the establishment they look around and like oh like How the hell did they do that? That's a lot of people. This is the thing that I just wake up to excited every day where it's like, this is so obvious. Like we have the people, we have the plan, we have like the willpower, like what are we doing? All we need is to bring the people down.
2: Indeed, Andrew, $1 for mental health, I think is (laughs) uh, a very, very reasonable ask. And I guarantee that if someone donates a dollar, they'll get more than a dollar back just out of the satisfaction of knowing that they're part of something so positive I can't wait to work with you on this and to, to see you build this movement into something that improves the lives of millions of, of people here in, in America and around the world. Well, Good thank Life you. Movement, man. Who could be against that? Not this guy who's for that. I'm going to donate my buck right now. Congratulations, Andrew. Fro- oh, hell, I'll even donate more than a buck. Let's go. Good Life Movement. Let's build it.
1: Yay. Thank you.